Hello, everyone. Welcome to Room Now's coverage of ACR 23. We've convened the Rheumatoid Arthritis faculty, and we're going to have a discussion of all things rheumatoid arthritis from ACR 23. This is our RA topic panel. Um, it's a video. It's a podcast. Tell your friends. I'm joined by the RA faculty who did a fabulous job this week at the meeting covering plenary sessions, posters. They were all over the place. Uh, even Richard Conway, who was in, still in Dublin and doing this virtually, was still all over the place and was a pro prolific tweeter. I want—I got to say, shout out to both uh, Richard and David Liu, who are on Twitter. Uh, and if you look at the most prolific uh, people on Twitter, actually, morale was in one category, and David and Richard were in another category as the most prolific tweeters. So again, you guys were really working hard. Um, I think morale had like 260 tweets or some crazy number like that. Anyway, quite an aside, I really want to get into uh, our faculty. Um, the RA faculty is led by our topic editor, John Kay. John, why don't you introduce yourself for the audience, and then we'll get to the rest of the faculty. Thanks, Jack. It's been a privilege and a pleasure working with such a distinguished faculty. I'm Jonathan Kay. I'm a professor of medicine at UMass Chan Medical School in Worcester, Massachusetts, and I was in San Diego on site. Here's La Jolla in the background, but now I'm back in chilly Boston. Richard. Uh, Richard Conway from uh, Dublin, Ireland, where I've been the whole time. <laughs> David. Hi, David Liu from Melbourne, Australia. And I think I'm somewhere, I'm halfway between San Diego and uh, and Dublin, somewhere in the world. And morale. Hi, I'm Morale Ramahin. I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. So um, we're going to uh, go around the horn and get uh, everyone's favorite abstracts on the topic of RA. But I'll begin by asking uh, our topic editor, Dr. K. John, do you see any themes or any um, takeaways for oh, sort of taking a big step back about what was happening in RA at this meeting? Certainly, Jack. Uh, this year, even more than last year, interstitial lung disease in rheumatoid arthritis was a big theme. It seems as if lung disease is replacing cardiovascular disease as the major comorbidity of interest. And there were several sessions devoted to interstitial lung disease, as well as an abstract on one of the plenary sessions. A lot of this coming out of University of Nebraska and the Veterans Administration Research Alliance. Uh, so a very productive collaboration among all of the VA physicians looking at rheumatoid arthritis uh, lung disease, uh, especially when you've got a group of older veterans, uh, many of whom smoked cigarettes uh, with rheumatoid arthritis, and some of them were exposed to toxins such as Agent Orange in Vietnam. So a lot of stuff coming out about interstitial lung disease. Another theme of the meeting was pre-RA. Uh, we've talked about established rheumatoid arthritis for many years. Then the topic shifted to early rheumatoid arthritis. And there were a number of cohorts, both in Europe and in Canada, and now a few in the United States of patients with early rheumatoid arthritis, but largely due to the foresight of Kevin Dean and Mike Holers at University of Colorado with their study of pre-rheumatoid arthritis. We've learned a lot about that, both at the cellular level, genetic level, and the clinical level, uh, we had at this meeting presented uh, the APIPRA study, a, a, a prevention study done in the UK and in the Netherlands, 
and I'll talk about that when it comes my turn. Uh, there's also a lot of information that's come out of the Accelerating Medicines Partnership uh, and a session presented some of the key findings, but those were all sprinkled throughout the meeting. Uh, and then there were some talks about novel therapies, uh, tick 2 jack one inhibition, uh, Bliss-April inhibition, and then uh, some newer agents which didn't necessarily pan out in phase 2A, but still hold promise, such as Nipocalumab, uh, and there's some other medications which are almost impossible to pronounce, but I remember back around 2000 how hard it was to get adalimumab to roll off our tongues. So if these medications pan out, uh, they'll become easier to pronounce. Uh, and then I understand that while I was at a rheumatoid arthritis therapy session, there was the FDA session where they talked a little bit about the proliferation of biosimilar adalimumabs. So there's lots to talk about, and I'll turn to my colleagues to see what they're interested in highlighting. Yeah, Richard, why don't you uh, lead us off? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my favorite abstract uh, from this ACR uh, was 1582, which was uh, from Brian England and colleagues from uh, Nebraska on ORA ILD. Um, I'm an ILD guy, so I'm delighted it's finally getting its uh, place uh, uh, in the limelight. Um, so this uh, abstract, uh, I really liked it, first of all, because it's a really smart study design, I think. Um, so they use this target trial emulation uh, study design, um, new user propensity score matched. Um, they had 237 patients who were on TNF inhibitors and 237 who were on non-TNF inhibitor biologic and targeted synthetic DMARDs. Um, that were then propensity scored matched to each other. Importantly, most of the non-TNF inhibitor patients were on drugs that we believe are the best drugs for uh, ILD. so 53% on rituximab and 28% on abatacept. So really we're comparing, or the TNF inhibitors are being compared to what most of us would consider standard of care of um, ILD. This was a VA study, so... Slight caveats that go with that, predominantly male, 92%, mean age of 68, um, uh, higher smoking um, as well. Um, and very interesting uh, results that they found here. Um, so their primary outcome was for respiratory-related hospitalization. And the adjusted hazard ratio for that was 1.22. Um, for um, That was comparing the non-TNF to the TNF, so favoring the TNF, but not statistically significant. They then went on and they looked at um, a couple of other important outcomes. So all-cause mortality um, with an adjusted hazard ratio of 1.12. Again, not statistically significant, but again, on the side of the TNF slightly. And respiratory-related mortality hazard ratio of uh, 1.36. Again, not statistically significant, but if anything, favoring the TNF inhibitor. I mean, I think this is a really important study. The perceived wisdom has been the TNF inhibitor should be avoided in ILD. That was based on a number of different studies, but all with relatively weak designs in some ways. The strongest of those probably being the, the BSR uh, Biologics Registry study, which suggested that there was a doubling of mortality in patients on TNF inhibitors compared to rituximab if they had ILD. I think this study says that we don't need to avoid TNF inhibitors in ILD. If somebody on a TNF inhibitor is found to have 
incidental or AILD. We shouldn't really be rushing to switch them to something else. I'm not sure it quite gets us to the place where we say we, say we should be using TNF inhibitors to treat RAILD, but I think it's it's brought us back to a situation of clinical equipoise where we can realistically look at doing uh, comparative effectiveness studies between TNF inhibitor and rituximab or TNF inhibitor and abatacept in RAILD. Um, so exciting times ahead, I think. The uh, novel thing about this trial was, in addition to its, its take-home messages, which were solid, and it was solid because of this uh, target trial emulation um, modeling that we saw several times in several big presentations in lupus and in, um, in, in uh, this one. And there's a few others that were out there. And basically, it goes beyond propensity scoring as a way of matching up data sets to give you reliable numbers without necessarily going forward with a large prospective trial. So that's a real take home for this one. David? Oh yes, I mean, and to the next question. Before, yeah. before we go on, I, maybe I think I think um, I, I want to get in a, a few comments about um, um, lung disease, if I could, and maybe if anybody else wants to chime in with another favorite ILD paper, we could do it right now. But I, I like the the one from uh, Jeff um, Jeff Sparks Group, twelve sixty nine where they did their characterization of, I, uh, of ILD in their uh, patients, the brass registry, 208 patients or so, and they showed that the majority of them were UIP patterns, but they had some NSIP, and what they really did in their analysis was come away with what I call, and what they were calling the 3S rule. The risk of getting ILD in an RA patient is based on the three S's, sex, serostatus, and smoking. So males are a big risk factor. Being seropositive, CCP or RA, and then smoking history, it really ups the odds. And it ups the odds not just for ILD, but when you have all three, it ups the odds for UIP more so than NSIP. And I thought that was a, a real nice um, takeaway. Um, I, 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 I must say, I kind of thought in those terms, but I never put it together quite so clearly as they did. Um, in their research. The, uh, the other one that I liked on ILD was this one from, um, uh, I guess it was a Japanese study, almost 600 patients, and they looked at um, airway disease. There were two abstracts that looked at ILD and airway disease, which when you talk to them, it was about bronchiectasis. And there was another one about COPD, a COPD cohort, uh, and they found RAs and ILDs. The bottom line is we talk a lot about ILD, and that's the one we worry about. But these other forms of lung disease are equally devastating. So having RAILD and COPD, bad news, high mortality rates. Having RAILD plus airway disease, bronchiectasis, and, and, and they, they were clear to say that it wasn't asthma and COPD. It was actually radiographic airway disease. So that's bronchiectasis and maybe boop. But again, those two together had significant mortality rates way above having either one alone. So again, there was this plethora of ILD reports. I don't know if anybody else has any comments about ILD from the meeting. I might just chime in. There's, there was another um, abstract from uh, Jeff Sparks group about antifibrotics in RAILD and real world tolerability. And I think what we've been concerned about from the clinical trials of both Nintetinib and then when it was um, the early stuff from perfenidone and RAILD, had been just a high rates of adverse events, particularly gastrointestinal 
Um, and then I guess a modest benefit on the other side. And, and really, I think he found very similar types of modest benefit and then uh, still quite high percentages from, from dropouts from things like gastrointestinal um, adverse events mirrored in real in real world practice, which I think is, is a little bit disappointing. I know there are new antifibrotics on the way as well, which are probably going to be more effective, may well be better tolerated as well. Hard to say that. But um, I mean, I think at the same time, there's still a clear utility for antifibrotics in our current um, practice of uh, a lot of ILD, including our AILD but, and, and other CTD ILD. But uh, at the same time, and maybe not quite the panacea for the problems and really getting in early, like we're talking about, trying to control the inflammation, doing what we do well as rheumatologists is key. So does that that data uh, resonate with any of you, meaning the the perfenidone, the, the nintendinib, uh, and even JAK inhibitors, they basically show a flattening of progression. So it changes trajectory. It doesn't improve anything, but it makes things, it keeps things from getting worse. Um, John, do you think that's enough data for us to be using these drugs, or do we need to wait more? Well, first of all, the mechanism of action of these antifibrotic agents is preventing progression of fibrosis and not necessarily reversing it. Uh, the BCR-ABLE kinase inhibitors like nintendinib have a high rate of gastrointestinal upset, so they're probably going to be less well-tolerated. There's a fairly high discontinuation rate when you use those in clinical practice. So I'm not sure how feasible that's going to be. Newer antifibrotic agents, agents targeting the fibroblast are going to be useful, not only in interstitial lung disease, but another major theme this year in rheumatoid arthritis was the cellular subtypes uh, in rheumatoid arthritis. And Koss Pitsalis gave a wonderful talk about directing clinical trials to the histologic subtypes. So lymphocytic predominant, monocyte macrophage predominant, and fibroblast predominant are the three major subtypes, and they're about 40%, 40%, and then the remaining 20% of the fibroblast predominant. Those are typically the patients that don't respond to the currently available therapies. And the question is what therapy can be developed to target the fibroblast? Certainly drugs like nintendinib and perfenidone. Perfenidone actually also inhibits the NLRP3 inflammasome from assembling, so it's got an anti-inflammatory effect as well. But Developing antifibrotic agents to treat rheumatoid arthritis, both in the synovium and in the lung, is really the holy grail. Yeah. And if we can get better, I mean, I think the ones we have now are a major advantage for people who really had no hope. Um, but we do certainly need to do better. David, I'm sorry I interrupted you before. I know you're going to introduce your next. Oh, no, I mean, yeah, there's, I mean, there's always so much to talk about. Um, I think one of the ones I really wanted to make mention of. Um, was actually a data from Medicare, it's, and it's really about ageism. So this is um, abstract 0433, and uh, what it looks at is between 20, 2008 and 2017, a 20% sample from Medicare, from the US uh, Medicare um, data, looking at patients with newly diagnosed rheumatoid arthritis in, in the first year, patients over the age of 66. So in my mind, all these patients any new rheumatoid arthritis patient should be on a DMARD in the first year. This feels like basic rheumatology, right? This feels like core modern rheumatology. And I can think of very few circumstances where that wouldn't necessarily be the case. 
And maybe some patients have self-remitting disease and maybe um, there are some very uh, uncommon circumstances where all DMARDs are in, in, impractical. But what we saw is that in this data set, only 30% of patients were on a DMARD within the first year, any DMARD, not a TNF inhibitor, not a targeted synthetic or biologic DMARD, hydroxychloroquine, methotrexate would all count and only 30% are. So we talk about all these incremental little benefits here for rheumatoid arthritis for our patients. And there are a whole heap of patients out there in our community who appear to be suffering essentially unnecessarily, um, either because they're getting steroid monotherapy or not getting treated at all. So I, I think that really speaks to, you know, we've got there's clearly a, their workforce shortage issues. I appreciate their access, all sorts of other different types of access issues. There's probably an element of ageism as well, maybe from um, practitioners, from, from maybe from primary care, maybe even from us, and um, also from patients themselves who just kind of come to accept that aches and pains and stiffness and swelling are all part of getting older. Well, you know, we live in in 2023 and that shouldn't be the case. So I really hope we can go about trying to address that systematically. I know that there are people working on ageism um, in uh, Unamacris and others who are really trying to push forward on, on that kind of thing. But I think it means a, a lot to a lot of patients if we can try and address this better. And, and I dare say in 2023, get patients started on a DMARD within one year of diagnosis. Yeah, uh, let me just... Um reiterate what David said in that uh, Una Macris, M-A-K-R-S, at University of Texas Southwestern is leading a number of different efforts in this regard. And if you're someone who wants to jump on this bandwagon, please contact her. I think she would appreciate um, uh, the support and um, more work on this because this is a, a theme that keeps coming up. The elderly are just under undertreated. Um, does anyone want to venture a guess as to why? Well, historically, there used to be an entity called elderly onset rheumatoid arthritis, which was typically treated with low-dose corticosteroids. And it was thought that elderly onset presenting rheumatoid arthritis was different from younger onset rheumatoid arthritis. But studies probably 20 or 30 years ago disproved that. Uh, so that elderly onset rheumatoid arthritis is no different from rheumatoid arthritis that presents at an earlier age. And I agree with you, David, that there's no excuse for not starting these people on a conventional synthetic DMARD, uh, methotrexate being the one that's most commonly used, but even hydroxychloroquine, if there's some reason to be reluctant about starting them on methotrexate. Uh, if I could venture just to introduce here uh, abstract uh 593, I think it is. There, uh, there's a, an abstract about split-dose methotrexate. I may be wrong about the number, but this was a plenary presentation on Tuesday at the meeting from India. And uh, this abstract looked at something that was talked about probably 20, 30 years ago by Joel Kramer and Mike Weinblatt, where uh, the bioavailability of methotrexate is increased or, or is decreased with higher doses. So if you split the dose and give 25 milligrams as a 10 milligram dose in the morning and a 15 milligram dose in the evening, once a week, uh, there's probably an increased bioavailability. So this study was a 
study conducted at six centers in India. It was open label, but with a blinded assessor, and it recruited patients with rheumatoid arthritis that was seropositive of less than five years duration, not on DMARDs other than hydroxychloroquine or low-dose prednisolone, and who had active disease with at least four tender joints and at least two swollen joints. And patients were randomized to either single-dose 25 milligrams or split-dose methotrexate 10 milligrams in the morning and 15 milligrams in the evening on the same day, once weekly for 24 weeks. Now, the primary outcome was a ULAR good response, and secondary outcomes were ULAR response, DAS-28, ACR-2050-70, and the hack. But they looked at these as secondary endpoints at 16 weeks, with the primary endpoint being at 24 weeks. The unfortunate flaw in this study design was that at 16 weeks, inadequate responders were allowed to switch to leflunamide uh, as a rescue agent. And as a result, the 24-week data included those who had not responded adequately to methotrexate at, 24, at 16 weeks and who had been on leflunamide for the last eight weeks of the study. So this study showed that uh, fewer patients in the split dose group compared to the single dose group were started on an additional DMARD at 16 weeks. Um, and the DAS-28 was lower in the split dose than in the single dose group at 24 weeks, but there was no difference in other efficacy measures at 24 weeks. But looking at 16 weeks, there was a significantly higher ULAR good response and higher ACR 20, 50, and 70 among the split dose than the single dose. So that helps to prove that splitting the dose of methotrexate orally is better than giving a single dose of 25 milligrams once weekly in terms of efficacy. And tolerability, there was a slight increase in transaminitis in the split dose group, but otherwise the safety profile of both was relatively similar. So this is a, something, a new presentation about something old, just reminding us that if you split the dose of methotrexate given orally once weekly, uh, you might get better efficacy uh, with equivalent tolerability and uh, safety. So in these patients with elderly onset rheumatoid arthritis, if you're going to start the methotrexate, you might start them on split dose um, and give it to them once weekly and get them under better control. The one thing about the SMART study that you just described, which was a 1583 uh, abstract number, is that you don't have to do this at 25 milligrams. This should happen at anyone who gets the 15 milligrams. At 15 milligrams, you should either go to parenteral or split dose oral. And the split dose is two doses, eight hours apart. Uh, and so it can be morning and night or night and morning, or you can do it on two consecutive days, but, you know, make it easy for the patient um, morning and night and uh, all on the same day. And again, you, you get better absorption, better efficacy. This should be standard of care in everyone. Uh, and interestingly, it's not in either guideline for the ACR and ULAR. ACR guidelines says that you go to split dose oral or parenteral if you're having um, GI toxicity. And that is a special kind of stupid because if you go to parenteral, you give more drug. If you go to split dose oral, you're giving more drug. You're going to get more toxicity if they're having nausea, queasiness, oral ulcers. You're going to get more, not less. So be prepared that when you do split dose, you are delivering more drug. Does anybody else have any, any caveats or hints on better use of methotrexate? 
Richard, you're about the trexate. I, 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 I very often go to subcost rather than splitting the oral dose. I just worry a little bit about the patients remembering that second dose. Mm-hmm. If they end up only taking the first dose, then they're only getting half the metatrexate. I mean, there are some patients you, you be very sure will do it, but a lot of people, I I worry a little bit about their adherence in that setting. Well, it's dirt cheap, and doing it that way makes sense. Um, how do, uh, how does it work as far as you've done it a lot of times? Patients adopt this practice pretty easily, or not? Going from an oral once a week medicine to a once a week injectable. What what do you think? I have no issues with it. Everyone, most people, when you say you're going on an injection, it's like, oh no, 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 I don't want that. But do the first one, not a bother. It this they much prefer it than the oral. Morale, what do you think? Oh, sorry. I was just going to ask: Are you using the sub Q pen, or are you guys are you actually using old school syringe and needle prescriptions? We only have we only have pens available now. Okay, because I feel like the obstacle here in the U.S. is the cost of the pens. At least that's been my experience, and so um, I see a little bit more hesitation with the syringe and needle approach. But I guess that's the thing about the tablets. It's just such an easy transition. Yeah. Um, Just as long as the patients don't end up taking one dose on Monday and one dose on Thursday or anything like that, where we're not going to get the chance for, um, well, yeah, where there's potential dangers. But, yeah, it does work quite well. Um, And, yeah, sometimes the wisdom of the elders is right. You know, the... uh, If if I could just interject, once you start splitting the dose and having more than once, once weekly dosing, Patients who get confused get really confused. So I had one patient who was taking the drug daily instead of once weekly. Oh, yeah. We've all had a few of those. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very important to caution them to be sure to take the two doses on one day. You know, it would be great if we all had a clinical pharmacologist working for us to follow up with these patients to make sure. And since we don't, maybe we should take heed the advice of Dr. Conway and not be too worried about switching to the injectable. Um, I, I want to close out with, with what David uh, talked about, why the elderly don't are get, not getting treated. Um, one, people are just afraid to treat older people with more aggressive therapies. Second, they have more, more comorbidities, and that scares people away from using new drugs, liver disease or diabetes or God knows what. Um, the availability of steroids seems to delay the need for serious medicine and in the primary care sector, I think that's what's going on. And I think the vast majority of that 30% um, use is really out there in the primary care world, not in rheumatology practice. Um, But I think there is data to suggest that even rheumatologists tend to um, under-treat the elderly. And and again, this is what we should all be railing against. Let's move on to morale's next uh, best abstract. Yeah. Um, if I may, I just wanted to piggyback two more points on that. Um, um, one of which is like, I don't, I I remember seeing that abstract and I found it very appalling as well. And so I don't remember seeing data breaking down the number of medications these patients were on. So polypharmacy Mm -hmm. comes up as a possibility as to why these patients might be hesitant, not necessarily from a prescriber perspective, but I also was curious whether or not this looked at prescribed medications versus filled medications, and if the data clarified between the two. So is it a matter of the hesitation of the patient from filling prescribed medications? 
Yeah, and um, I mean, all of those are potentially issues um, and that maybe comes down to patients' ageism about themselves. But, I mean, I, I just really want to address, we talk a bit about polypharmacy and in part of my other life I, I, I try and deal with polypharmacy issues. Um, and, I mean, I guess there's one, I look, I look at the polypharmacy from, say, sedatives and anticholinergics or, um, you know, multiple antihypertensives and other, those those kind of things, are in PPIs. We get look at the burden of that on, on one side, but then... We talk about DMARDs and control, and, and I realise there's a tablet burden associated with this, and there's a potential um, uh, for medication error. But at the same time, these are medicines that stop you from having to take other medicines that are potentially an issue, right? And, and actually, yeah, so, I mean, I really I, I feel like we, I mean, and I think sometimes that's the fault of the way we define polypharmacy. People talk about over five medicines or this kind of thing. Well, life ain't that simple, really. And that really, I think it's about trying to be very rational about the medicines that we're on, not have a heap of sedatives and anticholinergics, but hydroxychloroquine, just adding hydroxychloroquine into the mix can change people's lives, really. That's my belief. Anyway. My rant, sorry. I completely agree. That's usually my go-to <laughs> in the elderly population because it's a little bit more easier to introduce. Um, I will say in some, um, it is actually a little bit more expensive depending on insurance coverage sure. that they have. But I completely agree. This is appalling and we need to change it. Yeah. Um, well, 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 well. ACR Open Rheumatology. We've got it on the <laughs> website as well. Check it out. Go through the data. The, the more I, I try and keep on trying to find out the reason why the data is wrong, but the data sadly yeah. looks like it's right. Yeah. All right, Merle. All right. So I wanted to discuss um, what I felt was a clinically relevant abstract 2430. This was a retrospective cohort study that associated prior steroid use, prior steroid use on um, use on risk for maze. And so, as we all know, about 75% of RA patients use steroids to manage RA symptoms. And as we all also know, there's a cardiovascular event risk in RA that is increased by steroid use. Um, previous studies showed a dose dependent increase in the risk of all cause and cardiovascular mortality above a 7.5 milligram dose of steroid, while other studies suggested there was risk with doses lower than five milligrams. So the question of whether there's a safe dose and a duration of a steroid use that remains safe or that is safe remains to be a topic of debate. So abstract 2430 used some VA data and assessed about 18,900 RA patients between the age of 40 to 90 years of age mean about 62 with no prior maze to show that steroid doses as low as five milligrams per day with durations as short as 30 days of use and for with prior use even as long as one year prior all had an increased risk of maze. Um, it also showed that use of five milligrams had an increase in the for the past 90 days had an increased risk of maze 13%, use of seven and a half milligrams had an increased risk of maze of 19%. And use of 10 milligrams had an increased risk in mace of 27%. So I think this abstract should give us all pause and chronic, even low dose steroid use, given the increased associated risk of mace, even with low levels of steroids. And, you know, I used to think there was some safety to be had five milligrams or below. And this is definitely going to be a little bit more for me, give me more pause and be more practice changing. Not that I like to use chronic steroids anyways, but as we all know, there are just some situations that call for it. Was there in, in with this Beth Wallace uh, who did this presentation? I believe she, yes, it was. Yeah. Uh, did she say that um, that doses of one to four did not have this increased risk, or was that another? It was another abstract at the meeting. I think it was another abstract. Okay. I don't believe that Beth. Yeah. There said was another abstract that argued with the 
or put data out there, it said that one to four had no uh, significant cardiovascular risk. And uh, as you know, the Annals Internal Medicine, George et al. published that there was uh, a, a small risk with a one to four, although it's it was more statistically significant than you know big time clinically meaningful. So, but I still think the message here is an, an important one. All right, who wants to um, go? John, do you have a, a one that you want to go into? Sure, I'll I'll talk about uh, abstract eight thirty five, which is the Apipra study. And the Apipra study is probably the best prevention study for rheumatoid arthritis. This was done by Andy Cope, or was led by Andy Cope at King's College London and done in collaboration with other UK and uh, Dutch investigators. This was a study that enrolled patient or not patients, individuals who were rheumatoid factor and ACPA positive or high titer ACPA positive without evidence of arthritis. And they were randomized either to receive a batacept, 125 milligrams subcutaneously weekly for one year or placebo for one year. And these are patients without disease uh, who were treated for one year and then they were followed for another year. So at the end of two years, they were evaluated to look at whether or not they developed rheumatoid arthritis. And what the study found, first of all, was that patient reported outcomes during the first year were significantly better among those who were treated with the Batacep than those who weren't. Now, these were not individuals with rheumatoid arthritis, but they might have had arthralgias, fatigue, other constitutional symptoms, and the HACDI and the uh, fatigue measures and so on were better. And then when they stopped the Batacep, they returned to the same level as placebo-treated patients. In terms of development of rheumatoid arthritis, I think about 30% of the patients uh, who were treated with placebo developed rheumatoid arthritis. And the development of rheumatoid arthritis was delayed in those individuals who were treated with abatacept, but it didn't completely abrogate development of rheumatoid arthritis. However, interestingly, when they looked at individuals who had specificities for three or more different citronated antigens, those individuals had a greater separation in terms of the survival without rheumatoid arthritis, suggesting that there's a window of opportunity where there's a more mature immune response before the onset of clinically evident disease where one can intervene at least with an inhibitor of T-cell co-stimulation. And there's also effects of abatacept on B-cells, but a medication such as abatacept to delay uh, and even prevent the onset of rheumatoid arthritis. Now, this was a relatively small study but one that achieved statistical significance in its findings. And it certainly points out that abatacept therapy might be one approach uh, to try to delay and even prevent the onset of rheumatoid arthritis, especially in those individuals with high titer anti-CCP antibodies uh, and with multiple specificities for different citrullinated antigens. Richard, what do you think of this study? Uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate and say I, I don't think we're preventing ORA at all with this. I think we're treating ORA as it develops. So patients a year on a batacept, um, obviously probably not going to develop ORA while you're on a batacept because it's a very effective drug for rheumatoid arthritis. And I think if you look at the, the survival curves in this study, over the second year, they kind of rapidly converge. They don't quite meet. Um, at the end of the second year, it's 37% versus 25%. But I, my gut feeling is if this was a three-year or a four-year study, they probably would meet. 
I think the reason they are that we are seeing some kind of leftover effect after a batiseptic is stopped is, is kind of the same thing we see in the biologic withdrawal studies. Not everyone flares straight away. Patients flare maybe six months or 12 months or longer down the line, but ultimately everyone flares. So I, I, my gut feeling is we're probably still too late when we're trying to intervene at this stage. These patients are already going down the pathway of developing rheumatoid arthritis. And if we really want to prevent it, we need to get in even earlier before they get arthralgia, before they get synovitis on ultrasound, that the time to try and prevent it is earlier on. Not everyone in this study had synovitis and ultrasound. Certainly a proportion of them did. And those are patients with probably very, very early rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, the ARIA study, which came out of George Shett's group in Erlangen, uh, gave intravenous abatacept. And those patients had MR evidence of synovitis, but no clinical evidence of palpable synovitis. So that's certainly very early rheumatoid arthritis. These studies are incredibly difficult to recruit. Uh, Kevin Dean did a masterful job with the STOP RA study, but it took quite a long time to recruit even as many patients as were recruited there. Uh, and if you're going to exclude individuals with any sonographic evidence of, of uh, synovitis, it's going to take forever to recruit a very small number of individuals. Uh, so we have to rethink how we study these agents and how we study prevention of rheumatoid arthritis. It might be more at a molecular level looking to see whether you can slow progression of something. Uh, I think uh, the work of Kos Pitsalis and his colleagues uh, looking at biomarker-driven uh, clinical trials will probably have some role in future studies of prevention. So, you know, when we get into these discussions about these early um, prevention trials or in intervention trials, um, it's really interesting. I'm the kind of guy who says this is delay and prevention. And I think there's many people think like Richard, that you're just treating. And when you stop treating, guess what? It comes back. And and you know what? We're both right because it's a continuum. And, um, and where you get them when the people don't like these trials say, well, heck, you're treating rheumatoid arthritis because they had subclinical synovitis. And that was the case in the ARIA study and the APIPRA study. 75% did not have subclinical synovitis, only about 25%. And then by ultrasound, it was like 30% or something like that. So, but the idea is that it's all a continuum. And I think a long time ago, I heard Kevin Dean use the term a ratcheting effect. The more something happens, you know, it starts out with autoimmunity and then and then you get more autoimmunity and, and you know, there's the genetics, then the autoimmunity and it gets ratcheted up by environment. And, and then you start to see these different things that, that uh, now the subclinical synovitis, but no palpable. And the idea is it doesn't matter, you know, it's just that, you know, you, everyone's going to have their own threshold as to when they will actually bite the bullet and write the prescription. Unfortunately, we know that the prescription of hydroxychloroquine doesn't work and methotrexate is very arguable. Uh, and most people don't believe in the rituximab that I did. And then there's a lot, there's this dearth of evidence in favor. So where this is going to go remains to be seen. But I, I do want to make the point that John and I pretended, attended the last day, a session that was about the biology, if anything, of uh, preclinical RA. And that presentation, John, where they showed all this increase in B cell and autoantibody activity right before the onset of disease fits well into this Epipra story where they had multiple autoantibodies and very, very high titers. 
that's where you had prevention, where the lines did not meet. Now, like Richard said, if you follow them out six, seven years, um, maybe they would meet, but still that would be a tremendous benefit. So I do think that there, we're talking the same story, even though we may be viewing it from either more positive, too positive a version or too negative a, a way. But uh, let's get the final say from David and uh, Morale. What do you guys think? Well, can I just um, maybe, I also have controversial opinions on this, but I I wonder whether sometimes we get ourselves in a knot about um, having the standard being prevention of rheumatoid arthritis from these clinically suspect arthralgia trials. Because the fact is that these patients, you know, whatever we label them, they suffer from joint pains, from stiffness, from um, functional impairment. And we've seen from the treat earlier study with methotrexate in these type of patients, um, which, you know, we've, we've had a look at the data now. We saw that actually we were able to put off a lot of the functional impairment and improve the quality of life through methotrexate in these patients. For me, that's a win, right? That's um, I, I know that maybe it didn't end up um, kind of changing the eventual rates of rheumatoid arthritis. But if knowing those data, if you put me in that situation, I'd want to take methotrexate because I think we can manage the risk. But at the same time, I, I want my life back in that situation. So I don't feel like we should belittle the um, suffering of patients with clinically suspect arthralgias. Um, and even though I do fully appreciate this broader discussion as to it'd be nice to have this short, sharp, well-timed intervention that prevents, you know, gets us to drug-free remission or gets us to a proper cure for rheumatoid arthritis, which we've just clearly got to get better and better at trying to identify those patients scientifically. But then after that, we're going to have to, like Jack says, kind of have to find these patients, you know, like I think these are hard to find and we're going to need better systems to find them if we're going to do that. Morale, what's your take? Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's a clinical continuum, and I think it's really hard um, to define whether there's a window of opportunity to prevent or whether you're just treating early. But I think given the opportunity to treat early and at the core of it, I think what I agree with David, what the focus should be is what is the outcome for the patient? And if the quality of life is improved and you're better handling their clinically suspect arthralgia with a DMARD as opposed to steroids intermittently, I think that's the way to go. Okay. Jack and I are a little bit older, and uh, in terms of prevention, when we first started out, uh, the thing to prevent was structural damage. And so uh, prevention of rheumatoid arthritis was preventing structural damage and preventing joint replacement surgery, and that was achieved with TNF inhibition uh, and methotrexate in combination. And then we got to earlier disease, and we looked to try to prevent progression to joint damage. And now earlier with uh, clinically suspect arthralgia. So the more we define earlier and earlier disease, the more stringent the notion of prevention becomes. Uh, as David points out, what we really need is not a treat earlier study, but a find earlier study where we can uh, look to see how early on we can identify individuals so that we can initiate appropriate interventions to prevent the onset of clinically symptomatic disease. All right, we got a few minutes left. I'd like to do some quick hits if we could, not looking for a lot of discussion on each of these. Um, what do you think was uh, the uh, an abstract that we need to know about? David, you want to start? We'll go, everyone gets one shot at this. Okay, my best abstract of the whole meeting was the last abstract of the meeting. That's 2586, which was, um, Peter Taylor presented this, but a lot of other luminaries on this. It's cell-free DNA in identifying um, rheumatoid arthritis patients versus other um, other patients with other arthralgias, osteoarthritis, and other inflammatory diseases. 
So cell-free DNA, when a cell dies, releases essentially kind of the footprint of what it was doing at the time. And so we can actually get a really good sense as to the immune processes that are in play. In fact, from, from, from the blood, things that might actually mirror up with the synovial tissue. And so what this really looked at is a blood test, which is, um, you know, which has to a very high level, over 90% specificity and sensitivity can identify rheumatoid arthritis versus other um, diseases. Now, you know, maybe it's not as, I think, you know, John got up and asked a really great question about, you know, why, you know, it doesn't outperform the classification criteria, but he and I were talking afterwards. And I think if we can use this to try and identify um, without kind of all the biases that we have as clinicians, try and find objective groups of um, rheumatoid arthritis and potentially use those to, to direct therapy, just like they did it in R4RA with the synovial tissue. If we can try and do something like that, but with a blood test, th I think this could be game-changing, honestly, in the future. But I'm missing why is this different than RF or CCP? Well, uh, if, if the patient comes to you with a positive, a lot of the patient times, um, uh, like a patient will come to me and say, I have my GP did the rheumatoid arthritis test and it's positive. And so I have rheumatoid arthritis, right? And, you know, they have a positive rheumatoid factor, low titer rheumatoid, positive rheumatoid factor. This is far, far more exacting. And I think if we can get to the point where we actually have a meaning, if, if rheumatoid factor did that, if I could guarantee that everyone with a rheumatoid factor of 50 had rheumatoid arthritis, then I'd probably have less work to do, thankfully. But, um, you know, it would be a lot more useful. This is something which can do, A, more than that, the B potentially could really direct therapy so that we're hitting the right biological target of the synthetic agent the first time around. And I think that would be, that's the holy grail, isn't it, of what we're doing with um, in our current rheumatoid arthritis treatment paradigm. Well, it's exciting and promising, but not yet ready for prime time. What needs to happen <laughs> is there needs to be an unbiased approach to try and identify subgroups and based on these uh, DNA, extracellular DNA, and then seeing whether there are characteristics of those patients in terms of response to potential therapies. So this is a interesting technology, uh, very promising, but still a lot to do. Moral, what do you have? Yeah, so there are many abstract findings that haunt you because they um, tackle a fear you might have. And one of the fears I have is that I might miss ILD in an asymptomatic patient at risk. And so abstract 0409 was a prospective longitudinal cohort study that examined both the prevalence of clinical and subclinical pulmonary manifestations in patients newly diagnosed with RA, psoriatic arthritis, and peripheral spondyloarthritis. The assessment was completed through a diagnostic workup that included a patient history of physical examination where they assessed the breathing width, so anything less than three centimeters was considered positive, and the chest excursion, anything less than eight centimeters was considered concerning. They also did a PFT with a DLCO, a six-minute walk test, labs that were inclusive of CRP, RF, and ACPA, and a chest x-ray at the time of the rheumatic medical disease diagnosis and every three months thereafter for a year. So the study overall included 54 rheumatic patients, 26 of which were RA, 24 of which were psoriatic arthritis, and four of which were peripheral spondyloarthritis, and 25 matched controls. An abnormal chest x-ray suggestive of pulmonary impairment was diagnosed in 38% of rheumatic patients, so 24% of which were RA, 10% of psoriatic arthritis, were psoriatic arthritis patients, and 4% peripheral spondyloarthritis. And only 36.8% of those um, patients had experienced clinical symptoms of coffin or dyspnea, while 63% had subclinical or asymptomatic pulmonary manifestations. 
And they found that this was true, especially in those with the mean age of 57 years, and if they had an elevated rheumatoid factor. So the prevalence of pulmonary manifestations in these rheumatic medical diseases at diagnosis was more than one third of these patients, with more than two thirds of them presenting asymptomatically. And as we all know, the new 2023 ACR ILD guidelines were recently published and do conditionally recommend for screening in those with system, systemic autoimmune rheumatic diseases at increased risk for developing ILD. They don't further define those risks, but we know some of them inherently. Um, and they recommend doing so with PFTs in a high-resolution CT chest over PFTs alone or a high-resolution CT chest alone. But oh. it's, it's yeah, how do, you, how do you have that discussion with someone who's asymptomatic that you want to get a CT chest scan in them? Well, and in the... The polar opposite of this is we find it all too late on aut autopsy or when they get really bad disease and they go downhill really fast. So uh, you're yeah. making a case as this does this research for being more proactive early on. Um, yeah. Richard, what's your quick hit? So I've got 1675, which is survival in uh, patients with RA and early breast cancer on TNF inhibitors versus uh, not. Um, and I know what you're going to say, Jack, the ACR guidelines say that we should treat patients with solid organ tumors as if they don't have tumors and use all our available drugs. But that's not what we see consistently in clinical practice. And that, this study shows that only 17% of these patients received a TNF inhibitor in a year in the year after their breast cancer diagnosis and treatment. They followed these patients out for five years, very reassuring results. So overall survival, no significant difference. Uh, point estimate 0.75 in favor of the TNF inhibitor. Breast cancer uh, free survival, statistically significant in favor of the TNF inhibitor with a hazard ratio of 0.29. And in contrast, the drug these patients are often given, glucocorticoids, uh, worse overall survival with a hazard ratio of 2.5. Yeah. You know, John and I both have a real interest in cancer and RA and the drugs. John, what's the one take home that you want to give the audience about this issue? It keeps coming up amongst practitioners, what to do when cancer shows up in an RA patient. Do you have one message you'd like to uh, impart? Well, when cancer shows up in an RA patient in terms of therapy, I think the most important thing is with melanoma. Uh, and with melanoma, one does not want to use TNF inhibitors because of the occurrence of or recurrence of melanoma. A baticep because uh, CTLA-4 IG is the opposite of checkpoint uh, therapy. So uh, really, one wants to be careful with melanoma. Uh, and in terms of malignancy with rheumatoid arthritis, screening measures should be performed regularly, age-appropriate screening. All right, so my quick hit is another diagnostic issue. Um, and this is uh, abstract number 402, artificial intelligence to detect finger swelling in RA patients. This was a cute little graphically enriched uh, poster where it was all about cell phone pictures of fingers that you send into a computer and the computer uh, calculates your um, PI, and it's only for PIPs. And they did this like in a few hundred patients and 1700 joints, and it'll do PIP di diameter, but then it's going to calculate the finger folds on the PIP. In fact, if you look at all the graphics, it looks like they were doing finger puppets. They had all these drawings over the, 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 the folds here. 
And the idea is that if you get swelling in a PIP, you lose the fold um, and the, cre the crevice becomes um, more indistinct. Uh, and as such, you end up with a finger fold index. Um, and as they showed, really high predictive value um, uh, and whatnot. The only thing that they did not do in this was compare it to a physician joint exam as far as that degree of accuracy. But it was accurate in, in, in its reproducibility and detecting swelling and, uh, and, and whatnot. And I thought it was um, a neat futuristic way uh, and, and it really does sort of uh, empower those who want to do tele, telemedicine that your patients can take their picture, um, send it in uh, online ahead of the visit. You'll get their fingerfold index score of their PIPs um, only, uh, and that can be another um, supplement to what you might do. Again, I think it's something that will... Um, when we get around in the next few years to being digi truly digitally assisted physicians, um, this sort of thing will be in play. I do have a little, uh, one of my videos for Room Now, and if you go down to the Room Now website, you can find it. goes on a little rant about this, basically, because in my mind, that particular bit is a tech solution, which is looking to try and shove itself in there. I think there's a lot of potential in this space. And, and you know, actually one of the same authors on that paper, Thomas Hugel, Actually, did a another was on another abstract where they looked at hand movement videos of hand movement and matched that up to um, joint counts and DAS twenty eight. And I think you know we need to anchor ourselves in that clinical stuff. But the photographs right now, at the moment, they haven't mapped it up to imaging findings. They haven't mapped it up to um, to joint counts or clinical outcomes. And you know, I think there's going to be a lot of um, not saying that these people are falling into that category, but there are a lot of tech charlatans out there trying to sell us all sorts of snake oil. And it's up to us to educate ourselves about what we need to do um, so that we can find the right things and apply it to, become, to make telehealth stronger right. and to really move with the, the technology. Um, but then, you know, there are some people there are going to sell us some other stuff and we need to, to be ready to fight that. But just to give credit to Thomas Hugel in Lausanne, He's been working on artificial intelligence for quite some time, and it's hard to talk about ACR Convergence 2023 without mentioning the opening lecture by Avi Goldfarb, who's an economist from University of Toronto, who talked about how artificial intelligence, by making uh, information less expensive, allows for use of more data uh, for prediction purposes. We're not yet ready for prime time in terms of using this clinically, but as there are fewer rheumatologists to care for the increasing number of patients with rheumatoid arthritis and other diseases and follow-up visits have to, by necessity, be spread out further and further apart. Uh, having digital tools like looking at fingerfold number and so on, or other digital medicine approaches uh, will certainly help to provide better care for these patients who are not able to get into the rheumatologist as frequently. All right, folks, a very stimulating hour of discussion about RA. Um, the audience should certainly look for other topic panels on lupus, PSA, spondylitis, JAK inhibitors. Um, I, you'll find those equally as interesting as this. I want to thank the faculty for their contributions and really hard work during ACR. Bye, all.